As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. China has a major tax problem, or actually China has a few major tax problems, and most of them stem from the fact that China is both the second largest economy in the world, with advanced financial systems and international trade networks, while also still being a largely informal economy. China's large economy demands a level of government spending which requires a large and broad tax base to fund. Unfortunately, the country does not have that. The United States, China's closest peer in economic size, has federal tax revenues of around 17% of GDP, or around 25% when you include all local and state revenues. China, by comparison, has revenues of 9%. Now, this video isn't to argue for lower taxes or higher taxes. It is instead to look at the systemic issues that China will have to overcome to stop living on borrowed time and create a sustainable system to fund its government's activities. To truly understand this problem, we are, as always, going to need to look at some specific issues. Why has China been unable to raise more taxes from its economy? Is this low tax revenue actually going to hurt its economy? And finally, is there anything that they can do to fix this issue? Once we have done all of this, we can put China, the second largest economy in the world, on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. So China's tax collection problem is really three problems. They can't collect taxes from most people, the people they can collect taxes from do a really good job of avoiding those taxes, and the taxes they do collect don't always go where they need to. China operates off a central authority, but no single man or even a single institution can oversee the operations of 1.4 billion people in one of the largest countries in the world by basically every metric. That's why the government authority is shared amongst provinces with their own sub-provincial regions and cities within those regions. All of these local authorities are in charge of certain government functions that are too small or regionally specific to be controlled by the government organisations above them. It doesn't make sense for the People's Party Congress to be managing the trash collection schedule of Hangzhou, so they delegate that down to the provincial government body who will probably delegate it down to a city council. So far this is not that unusual. It's basically exactly the same system that I'm sure most of your own governments use to perform their functions. The big difference is in the way that they get their funding. In most developed economies, local governments get their funding primarily through a combination of property taxes and money coming from a more senior level of government. The federal government gives money to the states and states give money to their local governments. They may also have alternative revenue sources from things like parking tickets or business fees, but those are pretty much irrelevant compared to these two. China's local governments are a little bit different in that they make most of their money by taxing businesses and selling off 20 to 70 year leases on their land holdings. In China, no private company or citizen can own urban land, so renting it out for 70 years is the next best thing. 60% of whatever these local governments make from businesses needs to be returned to the central government, but the land revenues are all theirs. This is a very significant revenue source because the real estate market in China is absolutely massive. We made a video a few months ago about the real estate debt crisis the country had got itself into to prop up this market. A video that, I'm just saying, we released just a month before the news broke about the financial troubles of the Evergrande Property Development Group. 
Now, the thing about land lease revenues is that they only work if the land is worth developing. Land is only worth developing if there's some kind of infrastructure in place to support the people that will be living in these new developments. The solution to this is that provincial governments are consistently in an arms race against one another to build out more infrastructure so they can make themselves economic hubs, so that they can sell off land rights, so that they can fund more infrastructure, so that they can make themselves economic hubs. This game of chicken and egg does two things. The first is that it creates a glut of infrastructure. Ghost cities and railways that carry no passengers are not uncommon sites in China. Again, we did a video about exactly this. The second thing it does is necessitate a lot of upfront investment by these provincial governments. The problem is that these governments are not allowed to issue bonds and they don't start making land revenues until they sell off their land holdings. So they need to get creative. They have come up with what is called a local government financing platform and it's pretty much exactly as dodgy as it sounds. What these local governments do is set up a private company and then give that company some of their state assets. This can be cash, shares in state enterprises, or the land rights that they are trying to sell off. This supposedly private company can then go to the bank and use all of these assets as collateral to get a loan. The local government can then use this cash to fund whatever infrastructure projects it wants, and the banks can bundle these loans up and sell them as bonds on the open market. In 2019, Local government financing bonds constituted 39% of all outstanding bonds in China's domestic market. The other 60% was, up until recently, mostly made up of real estate bonds sold by the development companies that needed funding to build on the land that was being leased out to them by these local governments. These local government financing platform bonds are deemed to be quite safe because they indirectly have the backing of the Communist Party, and it's unthinkable for many Chinese investors that the government would default on their debts. This also has the benefit of pushing government debt into the private sector, so national debt-to-GDP figures look better than they really should. Of course, the problem is that these are local governments, not the national government, and they have every chance of going bankrupt because they are limited in how they can raise revenue. So far, this whole system hasn't been an issue because the real estate market has appreciated in value so relentlessly that even the most reckless borrowing practices can be wiped away with the money that is made by leasing out this land. But this precarious status quo is starting to come undone. For starters, China is still practicing strict lockdowns to stop the spread of COVID. The government has adopted a zero case policy, which means even entire cities as large as Shanghai will go into complete lockdown should any cases be detected. These lockdowns have banned people from leaving their house for any reason outside of getting groceries, so businesses are obviously suffering. A lack of business activity has cut off a major source of revenue for local Chinese governments, and that's before we get into the problems in the real estate sector. The unwavering confidence the Chinese people once had in real estate is, well, uh, wavering off the back of high-profile property development bankruptcies. This has meant that less people want to invest in properties, which means less are getting built. Less getting built means that local governments gain less revenue from renting out their land holdings. It also means that banks are no longer interested in accepting these land holdings as collateral to underwrite the bonds for these local government financing platforms. To make this all worse, the Chinese central government has started issuing tax returns to compensate citizens from being locked into their homes, while simultaneously pushing for more infrastructure projects to offset the economic impacts that the lockdowns caused in the first place. This means less money coming in, more money going out, and less options to raise money to bridge the financing gap in the meantime. 
Now, if highly speculative financial assets that are deemed too safe to fail because they are backed by real estate in a market that has been booming sounds familiar to you, then this should probably make you a little bit worried. To top this all off, almost all bonds issued in China are rated at least AA, and local government financing bonds are almost exclusively rated AAA, which suggests to investors that these are the safest possible investment, when the reality is anything but. This is a $19 trillion bond market that is based on a system that requires perpetual growth. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You might have been thinking this entire time that should this market implode spectacularly, well, that would be bad. But the central national government would step in to bail these local governments out, if for no other reason than to save the reputation of their own party but they might not be able to. The Chinese bond market is massive. The total value of the global mortgage-backed securities market is $11 trillion, and in many ways, that market was probably better regulated. This is a market significantly larger than China's entire GDP. And this is all to say nothing of the other big problem with how the Chinese government handles land. 20 to 70-year leases eventually come to an end, and some of those shorter leases have now started to expire, which is presenting the government with a problem. What do they do with that land now? The traditional agreement was that this land would go back to the government, but obviously that idea is very unpopular amongst the people that will be kicked out of their homes and stripped of their largest investment. A widespread belief has grown amongst Chinese citizens that the land will never be taken back off them once these leases expire because it would simply be too politically unpopular. The real estate market also supports this way of thinking. Homes with 20 years left on their land lease cost the same as homes with 70 years left on them, all other things being equal. Why would anyone pay the same price for a home that they can only live in for 20 years when there is a similar property available that they can live in for 70 years? Well because they don't expect that these leases will ever come to an end. That and building standards in open China mean that these buildings probably won't last that long anyway. This stasis has been further confused by new laws that proclaimed that residential land rentals would be automatically renewed, but failed to mention if they would be renewed for free or if landholders would need to pay for a new lease. A member of the drafting team that wrote this law actually later admitted that they kept it intentionally vague because they did not want to be responsible for choosing how this issue would be resolved. If the government does cave and chooses to extend land rentals forever with no further fees, then they would have cut themselves off from one of their primary revenue sources. So this leads us on to the other problem China has with taxes. People don't pay them. 
China does have traditional progressive income taxes ranging from 3% up to 45% depending on how much citizens earn. The problem is that most people don't pay this. Most people in China are still employed in the informal economy. They run small stores or work on farms or do a number of other jobs that are paid with cash in hand or transfers over WeChat. People on the other end of the financial spectrum rarely get their income from a paycheck and instead are able to funnel it through businesses and other assets which can massively reduce their tax burden. It is a narrow minority who are wealthy enough to have a formal job while not being wealthy enough to have the means to avoid tax that end up paying it. There have been a number of scandals surrounding high-profile Chinese business leaders and celebrities engaging in tax avoidance. And the truth is that the government could probably stop most of this tomorrow if it really wanted to, but it doesn't for two reasons. The first is that loose regulations around business taxes encourage business activity, and encouraging business growth has been a core driver of the country's massive economic growth over the past three decades. The second is that if they let people get away with dodging taxes, then at any time they can just choose to investigate those people and they will always know that they will find something to arrest them for very handy for silencing an outspoken celebrity or business leader. Of course, the problem this creates is that you can't effectively tax just 2% of the population. Not only does that leave an unfair burden on the workers who are genuinely paying their fair share and not only does it hamper the government's ability to raise regular tax revenue, it also fundamentally limits the government's control over the economy. A lot of focus has been placed on monetary policy recently in light of record high inflation. But fiscal policy, as in the raising and lowering of taxes and government spending, is just as, if not more important, to running an effective economy. Increasing taxes can be a very effective tool for curbing inflation, and lowering taxes can accelerate economic growth during difficult times. But a tax break is only effective if people were paying taxes to begin with. If the government fails to levy taxes on the majority of the population, this control mechanism is all but ineffective. Levying income taxes on just a small portion of the population means that the Chinese government really does not have that much control over the economy if it's going in any direction other than up. Managing an economy as big as China's during a downturn without broad control over the tax base would be like trying to land a jumbo jet by flapping a hand fan. Sure, everything might fall into place, but they really don't have that much control over it. Okay, now it's time to put China, the world's second largest economy, on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. Starting as always with size, and obviously there is not much to say about this. With a GDP of $14.7 trillion, it gets a 10 out of 10. That GDP is spread relatively thin out over the world's largest population though, so it has a GDP per capita of $10,400. This now makes it a middle-income country by global standards, and despite the criticisms I give it, no one can take away from the fact that it has been home to the single most intense period of economic development ever in history. This figure is almost exactly in line with the world's GDP per capita of $10,900, so it gets a 5 out of 10. Stability and confidence is a difficult one to place. The economy itself is so large and influential these days that it's certainly not going anywhere anytime soon, but we have also repeatedly seen things like businesses, not to mention people, been erased on the whim of the government. This sovereign risk combined with increasingly worrying news surrounding lockdowns and military ambitions means that the country can't get more than a 6 out of 10. Growth in China has been un 
unbelievable. It's almost hard to imagine a time now when China wasn't a major economic superpower, but its economy has more than doubled in size since 2010, and it's more than 10 times larger than it was in the year 2000. It gets a 10 out of 10. No other economy has really ever come close. Finally, industry. And again, what is there to say? China has got to where it is today by being the workshop of the world. They have developed from being a centre of low-cost manufacturing where foreign companies could take advantage of a cheap pool of labour to the unrivaled industrial hub they are today. The country now has an advanced financial system, a healthy domestic market, and globally recognised local companies. Sure, they aren't producing the real high-end stuff like airliners and competitive microprocessors, but they still can't get anything other than a 10 out of 10. Altogether, this gives China an average score of 8.2 out of 10, which puts it into second place on the Economics Explained national leaderboard. <laughs>